So as I said, our Wintrade Global Talks has left everybody speechless. And today is going to be absolutely no different because we will be shortly hearing from Sir Kenalisa, who, as I mentioned before, is the Lord Lieutenant for Greater London. And then we'll also be hearing from the wonderful Jenny Garrett, who received her honour earlier this month. So you'll get an all-round view. Hello, Jenny. How are you? I'm great. Really happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And Alison, thank you again for taking the time out to actually do the presentation. We've got quite a few people online waiting to hear all about how to demystify the Queen's honours and how to actually make nominations. So with that said, I am going to let you get straight into the presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Yvonne, for inviting me to come to speak to you all today. It's a very welcome opportunity to uh, address a wider audience on a topic which is very dear to my heart and also my day job. I am head of honours in the Cabinet Office and our role is to oversee the operation of the honours system as a whole. So everything from the point of public nomination through to a list of being published. So I'm going to give you an overview of how the system operates, its history, and particularly how you can get engaged with the system by making a nomination. So starting with, I think, what is perhaps an obvious question that we don't ask very often, which is why do we have an honour system in the first place? And the short answer really is because the monarch wants us to. In the UK, the tradition is that the monarch of the country is the font of all honour, which means that they alone are responsible for the honour system that every honour that is given is personally approved by the Queen and that the system comes from her personal royal prerogative powers. The slightly longer explanation for why we have an honour system is because it gives us an opportunity at a national level to recognise excellence and achievement and to showcase some of the best things about what we do in this country. And over 2,000 people a year receive an honour. And all of those start with a nomination, start with somebody who's taken the time and the trouble to see somebody who's doing a wonderful thing and to put them forward. So there is a history to the honour system, some good, some bad. It has its roots in medieval times and a system of patronage from the monarchy. But the modern honour system really has its roots in 1917, where the king, in the context of the First World War, decided that what he wanted to do was to ensure that a wider range of people can be recognised. And to do that, he introduced the Order of the British Empire, which is the order that I will be speaking about primarily today. It was, at the time, an egalitarian move. Prior to that, you had to be the great and the good to have any kind of recognition. And after that, it gave an opportunity for people to be recognised at all levels of society and across what was then, and of course is not now, the wider empire. So I'm going to start off by talking a little bit about how the system we have operates today. The first thing I want to say, there is often a perception that the honour system is politically controlled. And the reality is that actually the Prime Minister has extremely limited engagement or involvement in the day-to-day -day running of the honour system. But one of the things he does do is to set a strategic direction for the honour system, which essentially means the things that he would like to see prioritised. I should start by saying that in some respects, what he wants is in common with what all his predecessors for the last 30 or 40 years have wanted. He wants a system that is based on merit first, people who are giving service over and above expectations, 
particularly those who are supporting their community, be it professional or local, and people who are really going beyond the expectations of their role or their position. He doesn't want honours to be given to people just because they do a particular job. He doesn't want people to be given honours because they've been doing a job for a particularly long time or because they are uh, somebody who has risen up to fill a particular place in society. He would also like to see that we have engagement and involvement in the honour system across the entirety of the UK. And I'll come on to talk about that a little bit later um, in diversity terms, so both regional and in terms of the demographics of who receives honours. And then there are some specific things he's asked us to look at, people whose activities are delivering real change for others, people who are improving their local environment, tackling crime, increasing women's education across the world, entrepreneurs, people who run thriving businesses, people who export, and people who are working in kind of emerging areas that we perhaps haven't recognised in the past. So different kinds of technology, which I suspect Sir Ken might say something about himself, or people who are looking at ways we can support the environment. There's a sort of a broad range of areas where we would like to give additional recognition, but the backbone of recognition for the honour system is, as it has been for many years now, recognising community, voluntary and charitable activities. The honour system has gone through quite a lot of reform in the last 20 to 30 years and I'm just going to, to talk a little bit about that because Prime Ministers also oversee reform. So John Major made a couple of the biggest changes in recent years. Firstly, the end of automaticity, and that was the practice by which if you occupied a particular job, you were likely to get an honour. So you ran a FTSE company, for example, or you were a permanent secretary in a government department. You would expect in a jobs for the boys kind of a way that recognition would come your way at some point if you kept your copy clear. That no longer happens and hasn't done since 1993. The other really crucial thing that John Major did was to introduce a systemic way that the public could nominate people. Before that, you could write in to the government if you had someone you wanted to nominate, but there was no proper way of doing it. And he introduced that proper way of doing it with a proper form and a proper process. And then slightly more recently, the most significant changes to the honour system in recent years happened under Tony Blair's governments. In 2004, there were two very big reviews of the honour system and they resulted in a reform programme in 2005, which introduced independent selection committees. So those decisions are now made by groups of people who are experts in the field and they make recommendations, which then go to the Prime Minister and the Queen for approval. And Tony Blair also introduced the Prime Minister passing those recommendations from the committees directly to the Queen. So that meant that names were neither added or subtracted once that independent process had been through. When David Cameron was the Prime Minister, he reintroduced something called the British Empire Medal. And this was part of, at the time, uh, big society initiatives, but the idea was to add an additional 300 awards per honours list so that we could recognise people who were doing things very locally to their community, who were really involved in the nuts and bolts of what their community needed. And we see now recognition with BEMs through things like service to a particular institution, so a school or a town hall or a church in a particular area, or a cause that is very niche, 
or perhaps younger people who don't have a, a huge long track record of service, but might have done something really innovative. So fundraising for a cause, um, for example, comes up quite a lot in our, our younger demographic. So it's been a really successful expansion of the system. He also introduced a focus on diversity, um, which has become really important to us. It started as a diversity and inclusion group just to sort of think about what we wanted to do in an honours context. And it's now become something called the Diversity Committee, which is chaired by Dame Louise Casey, who some of you will know from most recently actually work on homelessness. And that has a really strong focus, gives a steer to the system as a whole about what we want to do and who we want to recognise and how we can improve in a systemic way rather than in a piecemeal way, representation across the entirety of the honour system. So that, that's been really important. So the process itself, there are essentially two routes for nominations to be made. They either come in through the public nomination process that I've spoken about. We get around 10,000 people writing to us a year. That translates usually to around three to three and a half thousand complete nominations that come into us. You can do that by downloading a form. In fact, we will still post you a form if you'd like one, or there is an online process that you can complete. So we ask you to tell us a bit about the person you want to put forward and then find at least two other people who would like to write in support of that nomination. So that's one route. The other route is the government departments write to their stakeholder bodies. So in business, that might be professional organisations uh, like the CBI. It might be charitable institutions, umbrella groups, that kind of thing. If you're in the charitable sector, it might be local government um, to find out about what people are doing in the community around the country. Those stakeholders are asked to put forward names. And through those two routes, we get a pool of nominees that departments then spend some time validating. When I say validating, what I mean is they look at the information that's been provided, they ascertain the truth of that, and then they do a, a little assessment of the relative merit of people. We're not looking in the honour system for people who are necessarily doing things that are completely unique. But what we are looking for are people who are doing things that are exceptional. So if you were in healthcare, for example, your pool would probably be quite a lot of nurses and doctors and, and people who work in associated professions. You would be trying to do a little bit of a benchmark of people against one another and their relative achievements. Once that process has gone through, there is a short list of nominees who come forward to the independent committees, of which there are 10, and I've got a slide on those, so I won't talk about them in detail here. The committees consider the lists that are before them, and they make recommendations which go to something called the main committee. And the main committee is made up of people who are the independent chairs of each of those individual committees, and they look at the list as a whole to decide who ought to go forward and they will consider things like probity and timing and relative merit and whether the judgments that have been made feel right when looked at as a whole. And that list will then go up to the Prime Minister and the Queen for informal approval. And it's only once we have informal approval that we will write to the potential recipients to ask them if they wish to accept an award. The vast, vast majority of people do. We have a refusal rate of around 2%, which equates to about 20 people per list. It varies, of course, from list to list, but it's, it's quite a low rate. Once we have a list of people who have told us that they want to accept an award, 
That list then goes back to the Prime Minister and the Queen for their formal approval and publication, which is on gov.uk. It's usually in the national media. And then the government has a paper of record called the London Gazette, which is not a newspaper in the traditional sense, but it, it is primarily an online resource these days to formally present government business. So I said there are independent committees, there are 10 of them, they are divided by sector and they have an allocation of awards each based on the relative size of that sector. The exception to that is because of the focus on community and voluntary service, and you'll see there Dame Louise Casey's name again as the chair of that committee, they have around typically between 40 and 50% of all awards on, on any given list and recognise primarily people who are working in the community and primarily in voluntary and charitable capacities. Otherwise, you'll see that there's a range of other committees where the allocations might be smaller. So the Parliamentary Committee, for example, has a tiny allocation of about uh, 40 awards. Sport only has sort of 120 odd. And then the bigger ones are ones like the Economy Committee, the Health Committee, Public Service in general, and so on. I said earlier that diversity in the honour system was very important to us, and it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that it has been the focus, I think, of most reform work in the last five years or so. We have actually done, I think, reasonably well in the last few years in trying to improve diversity in general terms, largely by setting ourselves some targets about what we wanted to see. So going back five years, our target was to increase the number of women who were receiving recognition so that each list was roughly 50-50 in a gender split. And we have achieved that. Previously, it was only sort of 40% um, plus, and we didn't feel that that was really good enough or representative enough. The same has been true in recent years of people from an ethnic minority background, where we were routinely seeing recipient rates of perhaps only 5% of people from an ethnic minority background. I'm delighted to say that that has improved quite a lot recently. We are still seeing a pyramid in recognition, however, where people of colour and women are less likely to be represented at the more senior levels. So the average at the moment is that, that women make up about 38% of the senior level of awards, so nowhere near the 50-50 that we see across the entirety of the list. And as I'll come on to say, the same is true of people from ethnic minority background, where the rates have gone up considerably, but less so at the more senior levels. We also would like to see more people with disabilities come forward. We currently get about 14% of recipients declare a disability. We would like to see more younger people. Honours are definitely skewed to the older generations. And we would like to see, particularly in the business sense, people who are entrepreneurs, who are doing new things, people in emerging tech sectors and people in retail. And again, I'm really pleased to see that over the last couple of lists, we've been really fortunate to um, see a large number of nominations coming forward for people who work in supermarkets, who have been so important over the last year to us all. And we'd really like to try to encourage that trend. The regional breakdown still demonstrates some inequities across the list. So London and the South East predominate and areas like the East of England and the North East are getting proportionately fewer awards than we might expect to see on population size. The last couple of lists have had ethnic minority recipients running at 14% of the total, which is a vast improvement of only a few years ago. If you look back just three or so years ago, only sort of 9% of people from an ethnic minority background were being recognised. And I, we want to consolidate these trends 
and we also want to see more people of colour coming through at the more senior levels. You'll see the last list, only 3% of recipients were from an ethnic minority background. So just very quickly about the levels of award, um, as I said, focusing here on the Order of the British Empire, starting at the top, you see knighthoods and damehoods. These are women and men of the most senior capacity, people who have largely got national or even international roles and who are recognised by their peer groups as being at the top of their field. And then working downwards, the distinction between levels is largely about geographic extent of influence. So a CBE is going to look like a, a less prominent national role or a really significant regional role uh, across the country or perhaps a uh, really significant role in one nation of the UK as opposed to across the entirety of the UK. An OBE will look more like a regional or county based role of significance and going down then to the most commonly awarded honours, an MBE is very much community based and will be seen as an exemplar by people that they know, work with and serve. And finally, the British Empire Medal, as I said earlier, very hands on, very often specific to a particular area or institution. These descriptions are, by the way, on gov.uk, so you can go and have a look at them in your own time. So in terms of who might be considered for an honour, the short answer is that anybody can be anybody at all. But what we're really looking for is people who have really given a contribution above and beyond and created a positive impact for other people and all those decisions are taken on the merit of the evidence in front of the committees so in writing a nomination if you've, you've got a nomination form in front of you the really important thing to do is to give enough evidence so particularly recent examples are very helpful so that people can see that somebody is still actively doing what they'll be recognised for and there's a really clear link. We need to understand someone's particular impact. Why are they special? It's likely that other people will be doing similar kind of work somewhere. What is going to make that person stand out as unique and different? What is the precise achievement that they have made that you can point to? So whilst we need a little bit of factual information about people's roles, the institutions they work for, whether they're paid or unpaid in what they're doing, we need to have a little bit of that flavour of what makes somebody important and special and why you're going to the trouble of putting them forward. Letters of support can really help with that. They don't need to be from the great and the good. They just need to be from someone who really knows the individual personally. So include what they're doing, as I said, and it's really helpful if you can make a distinction between what you might expect them to be doing in a particular role and what they're actually doing, how they're going beyond that, particularly if it's paid work that you're putting someone forward for, because they won't get it just for doing their job really well. Because the levels of award are looked at in terms of geographical reach, try to give us a sense of that. Is it just local? Is it slightly wider? Is it a professional impact that could be felt across the entirety of the country? And if it's relevant, identify the need that they're filling. You know, somebody who's set up a charity because there's nobody doing a bit of work to support a particular group of people is a fantastic example that we see a lot. And a brief note on confidentiality, quite important to us. We have an exemption under the Data Protection Act that allows us to gather information about nominees in confidence. Very important that it remains in confidence. And you can do that without worrying about the usual GDPR rules. 
obviously we want you to protect data and we want to protect people's data because that remains important so you can talk to people about a nomination that you're making as long as you don't talk to the person that you are actually nominating we don't want to raise expectations that we can't meet and it can be a lengthy process so we don't want people waiting around for something that may not come so the most important thing is don't speak to the person you're nominating and i should also say that you are not able to nominate yourself so nomination checklist this is really a reiteration of the points i was making earlier that you need to be able to highlight people's particular achievements it's good to talk about the things that they've done most recently although a sustained track record of achievement is also a wonderful thing that committees usually would like to see and it's helpful if you can give us some helpful background to understand the context in which people are working. And particularly if it's a niche field, explaining the background, the context, not using jargon that people might not understand is really helpful. So a bit of plain English always goes down well. And I just want to say finally that honours are only one of a number of ways that you can seek recognition for somebody. So honours are for individuals. If you wanted to recognise a business as a whole, you would probably look at the Queen's Award for Enterprise, which operates on an annual basis to recognise outstanding innovation in companies and things like sustainable development. And equally for charities, the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service seeks to recognise groups which are volunteer led. And again, that's an annual process, which uh, indeed Kenelisa will be involved in in his capacity as Lord Lieutenant and may touch on. And then separately, the Prime Minister has something called the Points of Light Award, which is a daily recognition of people who have done interesting and innovative things to support others. And there is a plethora of civic awards out there, which are ones run largely by councils and other organisations of that kind. And it's really important to consider what the right kind of recognition might be. And it might be a combination of those things. So I hope that gives you a useful overview. If you are interested in nominating someone, there is lots of information on gov.uk and that's the website address for you to do that. You can make a nomination online. You can also ring us up to ask questions if you're not sure about something or there's something unusual about your process. We'd be very happy to help. We have a public nominations team that is there explicitly to answer phone calls and emails from the public and to help you with your nomination and get that process. I should say just finally that if you do make a nomination it can be a lengthy process. We work on a six monthly cycle towards the publication of each list so we're already working on the birthday list for June and departments will already be trawling for their new year list so it's a long lead in time and we have to make sure that the people that we put forward are people that we've got the right evidence for and the right validation in place so it can take a while by all means ring us up and ask questions about what's happening with your nominee. But if you don't hear anything for a while, that is perfectly normal. I'm going to finish there. I'd be very happy to take questions, but I think everyone would like to go through the speakers first before we do that. So um, I'll come back at the end. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Alison. That was full of information, very clear, very concise, and I'm sure a lot of people got a lot of information out of it. So what I'm going to do now, I'm going to go straight on to Jenny and ask Jenny Garrett to join us because Jenny has just received some good news in the post pertaining to this year's New Year's Honours list. So over to you, Jenny, just give us a little bit of information about who you are and what you do and just the process, tell us. 
Okay, well, great to be here. And I want to thank you, Yvonne, for all the work you do to really enable people to know about the honour system and to increase the diversity of people who are receiving them. You know, I've known you for maybe about 10 years and been following everything you do, and you do it in a really selfless way. So I really appreciate you. Yeah, just a bit about me. I run a leadership and coaching consultancy Uh, Alongside my team, what we aim to do is really help women break through that glass ceiling and those from black, Asian and minority backgrounds and really help organisations to be more inclusive. So that's the main bit of my work. But also I have a social enterprise called Rocking Your Teens that I founded about five years ago now. But I want to take a step back from all that and just say that I'm really proud to receive the OBE. I'm more proud for my family uh, than myself. Um, My grandmother in the 1960s, I think, came from St. Lucia in the Caribbean to create a wonderful new life for her family. And uh, she passed away a couple of years ago, but she would have been absolutely over the moon to think that she left the Caribbean, worked hard in factories and doing all sorts of work to create a life for her family. And now her granddaughter has an OBE. And I think that's what's wonderful about the system that your background doesn't matter. I come from very humble beginnings. To be honoured in this way is really amazing for me. The work I've done, which is being honoured, has all been around uh, challenges that I see in society. So about eight years ago, I wrote a book called Rocking Your Role, which is a guide to success for women who are the main earner in their home. And I did that because I was the main earner. And I realised that women just didn't talk about this situation. And it was something that wasn't recognised in society. So I really wanted to advocate for female breadwinners. I started speaking in the media about it, started running programmes and speaking wherever I could on the topic. Um, Most of the time, not being paid to do this, but just to support women who potentially might feel that they didn't have a voice, might feel that they were unsupported, and might feel that they were, in a way, a little bit shunned in society because they weren't the norm. And for me, a lot of my work is about that. It's about finding solutions to problems and finding ways to serve people. And that work in terms of supporting women has taken me all over the world, audiences in South Africa, in America, in Mexico, all over Europe, in New Zealand. And and so it's been really great to bring some people who perhaps didn't feel that they had a voice or felt that they had to hide away, to give them a space to say, yeah, these are our current challenges. Maybe something that I wasn't so proud of, I'm now really, I I can be proud of this because I am a fan of men (laughs) as much as I am of women. But there are times when women have sort of made themselves small or not felt proud of something because of how it might impact men. And the work I've done and the work I continue to do to support women is to say, Yeah, the things that you achieve, be proud of them. They support your family, they support society, uh, they support the economy. And so I'm a real big fan of uh, helping women really make a contribution and feel proud of the contribution that they make. So that's a big part, this idea about empowering and supporting women and being from a family of really strong women has enabled me to do that. In terms of my social enterprise, what happened there was that 
my daughter, who's now off at uni, I came, became an empty nester this year. But um, about five years ago or so, she just wasn't doing well. She obviously comes from a family where people really encourage her to be the best that she can be. But in secondary school, started maybe dumbing herself down to fit in, really became a victim of all the social media that's out there. And I realized that there, I had a challenge to support her. And then when I read about it, I recognized that the challenge was not just mine, that actually there was a big societal problem. And so together with two partners, we created this social enterprise, Rocking Your Teens, to inspire teens, to help increase their aspirations, but also to help them recognize that they had choices in life and could choose to do anything that they wanted to and break stereotypes. And I think that's been a big part of my work as well, helping to break down stereotypes. So that social enterprise has gone from strength to strength. I think we've taken around 2,000 young people, students from all over the country through our our program and also through our events and we only focus on 13 to 14 year olds which was the age my daughter was at when uh, she had her challenges and there's not a lot for that age around and this is work that is completely not for profit never taken a penny out of the organization I do it because I had a challenge and I want other people to have that same challenge to be able to get the support and we don't just support girls um, we support boys too because one of the partners is a man and wants to support men as well in recent years, I've also done a lot of work to help advance those from Black, Asian and minority backgrounds in the workplace and set up a diverse executive coach directory so that those who are senior in organisation can access different voices, the different spaces, um, uh, hear different perspectives on what they're doing. So, yeah, my work is about solving those societal problems. A lot of the work I do is really about speaking up, my head above the parapet, offering my advice and my service in order to make the world a different place because I really want my daughter to have a different life and her children to have a better life. And I think we all want that, to leave a legacy where people don't have the same challenges around diversity, whether that's around gender, um, whether that's around being from a Black Asian minority background, but people have opportunities. And I feel really hopeful, really hopeful with all that's happened over the last year. Is that telling me to stop speaking? I saw this. <laughs> I'm sorry. We would love to sit here and listen to you all throughout the lunch. Again, inspiring, Jenny. You're just as inspiring to me as to all of those young people. Ken, your turn now. Jenny will join you shortly. Well, thank you very much. Jenny, what a brilliant and uplifting and motivating set of remarks. Thank you so much for that. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak today. I'm going to slightly change the tone from the, from the previous speaker, which was just so bubbly and interesting, positive. But actually, I'm going to steal that energy, uh, if I may, or borrow it, to make the points that, that I wanted to make. Hopefully, this first slide poses a couple of questions for the audience. Uh, hopefully, what on earth is the flag? And probably, what on earth is a, a Lord Lieutenant? Well, the easy answer is the flag is the Lord Lieutenant's flag. So that's the one that I get to fly on my car when I'm on official engagements in London, which is where I am, the geography of which I'm Lord Lieutenant, which doesn't really answer the question, what is a Lord Lieutenant? It just gives you an idea that uh, I've got a flag and some way of identifying myself when I'm out in public. But the Lieutenancy role is a 500-year post, started initially 
by King Henry VIII 500 years ago with a simple message of upholding the dignity of the crown. In those days, it obviously didn't mean Netflix. It meant rather upholding the dignity of the monarch, the king. And that involved 500 years ago, raising the army and quelling riots. So clearly our views of values in our system and our approach has moved on somewhat in those 500 years. And today, as then, there is a Lord Lieutenant for every county in the country, in the United Kingdom, so Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales, as well as England. And each one of us is charged with that responsibility to uphold the dignity of the Crown. The Crown, when you think about it, if you're watching the television series, you'll get some sense of a family and world events. But the Crown, the monarch, is a fundamental part of us, our nation. And actually, in many ways, what the Crown represents, what the Queen represents, actually officially, not just in many ways, is she's the head of state. So she is the equivalent to the President of America or the President of France. But she's also the head of nation. Her concern is for all of the citizens in the country, in the United Kingdom, in all four nations. And in that context, what she does and the way she does it, and therefore the honour system, which is, was explained uh, earlier on by Alison, is in her gift, is all about keeping our community, our citizens, together in, in well, in harmony, really, based on, on a platform of what I would call, what I do call, the British values. So this whole concept of the honour system and the monarch and our society is something which causes us all just to pause, I hope, and to think quite what does it mean to be a citizen of this, I think, great country. And if you read the newspapers and watch television and read social media, what we are bombarded with are the negatives of what's wrong with the United Kingdom. Actually, what the honour system is about is reversing that tide and reminding us of all of the good things about the United Kingdom. And it's that that I want to address now in my, in my few minutes uh, remarks. I'm not going to talk about myself. If you want to know anything about me, the, there is a uh, Lord Lieutenant's page and there's a very long Wikipedia page that talks about me. Other than to say that I have over many years combined a business career and a charitable pro bono career. And it's for that that I've got the various decorations that you see here on this slide. Let's go back to the role, though, of the Lord Lieutenant. You may see me from time to time on television welcoming members of the royal family when they come on an official visit to the United Kingdom. My last one was when the Cambridges and their children came to see Panto land at the Palladium in between the two lockdowns. But every time a member of the royal family visits a county, they are received either by the Lord Lieutenant of that county or one of their deputies. Deputy Lord Lieutenant, signified by having a DL after their name as a post-nominal, are distinguished men and women of the county who have served publicly and done good things within the county, who are appointed by the Lord Lieutenant as their deputies. I'm very lucky to have over a 100 such men and women in London, and you will see them as well whenever there's a member of the royal family arriving and you don't see me there. So essentially, I am around the royal family trying to find ways within my county, which is Greater London, eight and a half million people, find ways in my county to amplify what is valuable about the country, what our fundamental values are. Now, we don't spend much time as citizens of the UK reflecting on our values. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to define what I think is the point of the honour system in the context of values and then share with you some pictures 
which hopefully trigger in each of you a thought about what are our values. So I say that the honour system, to paraphrase what Alison was saying, is a way of recognising people who've done one or both of two things. They have either added lustre to our nation by their achievements, so a great scientist who wins a Nobel Prize enhances the standing of the UK and in so doing adds lustre to the nation. Someone that works 24-7 in a charity also is helping the society and community. So lustre and service to others. So here are four quick pictures to get you to think about what are the values in our country. Here's one which you'll remember from last year, a consequence of Black Lives Matter, the throwing to the harbour of a statue of a man who died in 1721, uh, which was about 50 years before America became an independent country, but very much a contemporary event. The famous aftermath of a demonstration, actually an counter-demonstration in Trafalgar Square, really there's so much power, I think, in this picture. But what you see there is a man who's been wounded in a fight, being carried out by one of the opposition to safety, surrounded by four other members of the opposition, making sure that that man got out safely from what was happening. Here is a moment from last year when Her Majesty went for a private service, just herself and her equerry, to Westminster Abbey to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the creation of the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior, an unknown soldier from the First World War whose body is buried in Westminster Abbey, the nation's um, cathedral. And that man was buried there amongst kings to signify to all citizens, citizens of this country that contribution to our country, sacrifice for our country, is a sacred, a sacred obligation. And there you see a Major T.A., the equerry, laying a, a, a copy, a facsimile of the Queen's wedding bouquet. Great statement there on the tomb of the unknown soldier. And finally, there is Captain Tom Moore, now Sir Thomas Moore, as a result of being dubbed on the shoulder by Her Majesty the Queen. You will all be familiar with his story, but he's the man who set out to walk around his garden and raise £1,000 for the NHS and he's ended up raising slightly over £32 million. And what's remarkable about that story, I think, is not what Sir Tom did, although that is of itself remarkable, it's that citizens in this country decided to contribute for an agency which we all depend on, the NHS, in the name of a man they will never meet, something which will help each other, and £32 million were raised that way. So hopefully those four pictures have tugged at your value heartstrings, and I think we're very lucky to live in a country which is a democracy and has a head of nation who cares about the well-being of every citizen and who reminds us of our values both by her conduct and by her words. Those of you who watched her Christmas broadcast will remember what I'm about to say, but probably many of you didn't. But in it, she, I think, absolutely bottled what this country is about when she said, remarkably, a year that has necessarily kept people apart has in many ways brought us closer together. The honour system is a way of bringing us closer together and to recognising people who have made that contribution either by adding lustre to the nation or by community service. So I'd ask you to do three things. One, reflect on your own personal commitment to the nation's values. We all depend on each other accepting those values. Secondly, to think of those whom you know who have added significant lustre or significant service to others. And then three, to finish off by what Alison pointed out, think about those people and then take the initiative to nominate them for an honour. Thank you. Thank you.
you so much, Sir Ken. Wonderful. So we've all been getting quite a few messages. Everybody's been asking questions. We have had a comment about the empire, which I know both you, Alison, and also Sir Ken, we had that conversation previously. Can you just give us a little bit of information about the thinking around changing the empire to something else? Yes, of course. This is perhaps one of the most interesting and important questions facing the honour system at the moment. Clearly, the term British Empire is very heavily loaded and redolent of a past that I think is best described as disputed. And clearly, there's a great deal of re-evaluation that has gone on, particularly this year with the Black Lives Matter movement and the soul searching that people have done over how we represent ourselves in uh, a modern UK, as, as Ken has alluded to in his presentation. There has been quite a lot of reform in the honour system in order to try to make sure that we are more inclusive. I suppose that's signified by the work we've been doing on diversity. As it stands at the moment, we don't have any plans to change the name of the order. Partly the reason for that is that the governing document for the order says it can only be known by the name that it is currently known by. So in order to change it, we would have to close this order and, and create a new order of chivalry. Perhaps the difficulty around that is there are literally thousands of people who are members of the Order of the British Empire at the moment. Mm. And uh, we have to think about them and the signal that it sends to them and how that process could be managed. Interestingly enough, we get quite mixed views, particularly from people from ethnic minority backgrounds, about how they feel about the terminology. Some people absolutely hate it for completely understandable reasons. Others, and particularly I think those who are second generation where their parents came from different parts of the empire while it was still the empire, very often say actually that their parents are incredibly proud about that connection, which is now, I suppose, reflected best in the Commonwealth. So it, there's some mixed views and, and actually very few people refuse an honour on the basis of British Empire. So I don't think this is a question that will go away. We will have to continue to think about what it means and, as Ken has mentioned, the, the values that we are signalling. But I, I think further discussion, debate, feedback from the public will be an important point in that. Okay, well, thank you again for that. I'm going to allow one question for each of you. I've got a question for Alison. Arit is in the room. Hey, Jenny. Hey, everyone. It's really good. Yeah, I asked a question. Alison, it was for you. You mentioned in your in your presentation, which is really good. Thank you for that. Significant achievement. If I'm nominating someone, what does a significant achievement in their industry or sector look like in practice? That is a really good question. You're absolutely right. There is a degree of subjectivity to it, I suppose. I'd say firstly, if it's somebody who is doing something that looks like a paid or a professional role, exceptional will look like here is the job, the job description, what you might expect of somebody. And here are the things that they are doing in addition to that and what is the benefit that accrues for doing that so the exceptionality comes in that gap between the, the kind of the baseline they might start from and what is actually happening and the effect that that is happening on other people and if you really want to see the impact 
upon others that comes from what somebody has done. And it's that personal impact that they will often look at. But they will also look at factual information such as an increase in employment or profit or somebody starts an apprenticeship scheme or ventures into a new market and makes a success of it. All those kind of things will feel exceptional because they are different. They are new. They are supporting other people. Wonderful. So I believe that Patricia Hay. Thank you, thank you very much. Really informative. Thank you so much for the time you've taken. And mine's a very quick question. There were figures on those medals. What are the figures and what does it say on the medals themselves? Yes, the Order of the British Empire, the imagery is of the King and Queen at the point that the awards were instituted in 1917, so George V and his consort. And the motto on it, the motto for the Order, is for God and Empire. So it's very much based in both the society at the time and and Christianity, actually, and, and that's redolent of the historical basis. Fantastic. So I'm going to invite Bipin to ask his question and then we've got Nyasha. So Bipin, please go ahead. Well, Happy New Year to everyone. You too. And, and I think me and Ken share the same gremlin in terms of our audio fees at the beginning of the year. So I'm glad we're over that. So my question is actually to Sir Ken. Your office probably gets you into and gives you access to some of the most splendid places and events over the year. So really, my question, which event or which place have you been that has been proved the most memorable to you? There's so many. I got to welcome President Xi when he came on his visits to the UK, and I went to the state banquet in Buckingham Palace, uh, where he was welcomed with, with open arms, which is quite interesting given the current political climate in the UK versus China, or UK and China. Uh, but probably the most memorable event for various obvious reasons was when I was also there to greet President Trump when he came for his state visit. Because it was America, it was rather more secure than the Chinese. So we didn't do the normal parade and all the rest of it in, in horse guards, which is what we would do. And then a long line of the chief of general staff, the prime minister, etc., Lord Lieutenant, would be meeting. But we did meet him in, in Buckingham Palace, him and his family. And I was there when he and the Queen gave their reciprocal speeches on the subject of the, of the special um, relationship. And so with all the events happening in America as we speak, it is quite interesting, and I have to say, as a Brit, quite satisfying to be able to draw a comparison between our system and their system, uh, between the Republic and, and, and the monarchy, etc. So I think probably perhaps it is just contemporary events that's doing it to me. But nevertheless, I would say the one big memory that burns for me is that second only, I should say, to the very first time I had to receive Her Majesty the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh when they arrived for a state visit. And as I was standing there and the car drew up, I suddenly thought, what on earth do I say? And I stupidly said, welcome to London, to which the Duke of Edinburgh said, welcome to London. We live here. Thank you very much, Sir Ken. Is that your question done, Bipin? There's one small one in terms of the impact of Black Lives Matters and the COVID and the pandemic. When do we see these superheroes coming to the forefront and being awarded? I see a shift. I mean, it, it gives me heart to see so many black people really taking time out and being honoured in such a manner. It's been a long time waiting. And I agree with the sentiments in terms of having the E stand for empire. And I, I, I would personally, only on a personal note, try and shift it to excellence because that I think is what it's all about. Uh, so when do, when will we see the, the impact of uh, recognising these in the honours list? 
Uh, so for COVID, it's already happening. We've already done six or 700 people in the last two lists, the birthday list, which came out in October and the last list in December, who were recognised primarily or, or with a key focus on COVID service. At Black Lives Matter, I have to say, I have not seen a nomination as yet for somebody operating in that space, although we get a very large number of nominations for people who are doing things in equality and diversity in general and community cohesion and, and all those kind of public debate issues. So it might just be that we need people to nominate them. And I, and I would add to that, if I could, that my colleague, Lord Lieutenant, and I remember there are 98 of us, have spent a lot of time through the lockdown season, or whatever the right term of it is, writing to particularly small charities, micro charities, as I call them, to thank them for the work that they do. So I've personally written for, I mean, lots, but I've probably 200, but arranged from the Pimlico Toy Library, for example, to a Hindu charity that provides sanitary products for girls who, from Gurdwaras, where they can go to collect things. And these are people who may never get an MB, British Empire Medal, whatever, but nonetheless are making that contribution selflessly on behalf of humanity. And they are recognised by, in this case, Lord Lieutenant's writing to thank them. So it isn't just the medals and it isn't just the, the gongs as it were, that we've been talking about. There is a whole system of, of, of national gratitude that we share, but, but official system of national gratitude that we share. All right, with that, I'm going to let Nyasha ask her question. Nyasha, you are our last question. My question really was about uh, sectors. Can one be nominated on different sectors, like entrepreneurship and community service? Yes, absolutely. And as Yvonne will know, as a former member of the Economy Honours Committee, which she did for many years, actually, that's what they're looking for. They want to see people who have got a mix of service and representation. And in cases where somebody's service is really split between two sectors, we just ask both committees to take a look and give an assessment. So, yeah, absolutely it happens all the time. Very common. Thank you very much. And Yvonne, thank you very much for these talks. I do appreciate them. You're welcome. Good to see you back because yeah. you just arrived back, haven't you? Yes. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank, thank you. you all. Thanks. Bye, Bye now. Bye.